Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randalls. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hi, everyone. This is Michelle Landers, founding publisher of the JSOM. I'd like to thank you for joining the JSOM's 20th anniversary interview series. We are excited to bring together a host of experts, all leaders in the soft medical community. In these interviews, we will be discussing the ever-evolving methods of treating battlefield trauma and injury, and how those methods have changed over the 20 years since the JSOM's inception. I hope you'll find these talks as informative as we do. Thanks so much for joining us for the inaugural edition of the uh, 20th anniversary of JSOM. And we're here with the world-renowned subject matter expert, Dr. John Craig, who, if this was a WWE conference, would have the heavyweight title. A brief review of the web shows that he is the author on 51 articles in JSOM. Google Scholar says 6,660, so there may be some duplicates in there, and, and um, <laughs> PubMed's got 116 publications, but those of you have probably read most of his outstanding work, and for those who have not, you shall go back to the fall 2013 edition of the JSOM and read Tragedy Into Drama which has a background talking about some friends at a Texas barbecue drinking beer and talking about the wonderful things that have happened to improve tourniquet use in the battlefield and save lives, bring soldiers home. So we don't have quite the great setting of a barbecue joint in Texas with some beers, but we are in the illustrious Institute of Surgical Research with Dr. Craig. Welcome. Well, thanks for the privilege. So uh, for those three or four folks out there who are still under a rock and aren't too familiar with your background, could you maybe describe how you got involved with advancing soft medical care? Uh, I went to West Point, and my peers, they went out to the force. I went to medical school. When I graduated, I wanted to go out and do regular Army stuff, and so I tried to uh, do a special ops tour, and I got selected for the Rangers. And I spent uh, three years at Fort Benning doing operational health. And uh, how about, could you educate our um, listenership on what was the impetus for focusing your practice on tourniquet use? In reading some of your old articles, you talked about a training accident, uh, which sounded quite profound. And then also, of course, all of your work in, was it Balad where you started to see tourniquets? In 92, I was in the Ranger Battalion at Fort Benning, and uh, we had an operation, and uh, it was in the Mojave, and um, we were doing stuff, and the Marines had, like, their infantry vehicles, and one of them flipped and squished a Marine and killed him. This night had a lot of hits, and so we had our Ranger hit. Uh, in a couple of parts, and I was walking through the desert forever, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Corporal Palmer was a uh, team leader. He was uh, two pairs of machine gunners in his team, so the five of them were in a Blackhawk, and one team came out the left door when they hit the ground, which is kind of a brown out in the black of the night, and... Um, 
the other team went out the other door simultaneously and uh, they started laying down uh, strafing fire and it the strafing fire, one of the bullets went right through Palmer's thigh, destroyed a bone and took out a section of his artery. Strauss was our medic, uh, private first class. He had just finished the 300 F1 trauma SF course. And so he had no time to forget what he learned. So he was a, had his A game and he was in the helicopter that was loitering in the air uh, to respond to any crisis and so they brought him down he's on the ground in about two minutes after the injury hmm. and Strauss did um, uh, his care by the book and this is 1992 hmm. this is before damage control and splinted him dressed him started an IV packaged him got him in the helicopter and he's at the hospital 20 minutes later that's about my recollection of the timing. So that um, was pitch perfect for that time. No tourniquet. The amount of fluid he got was about two liters. By the time he got to the emergency room, he got another liter or so in the emergency room, and then he got some more in the operating room where they did non-damage control surgery, and they tried to repair his artery. He basically became um, coagulopathic, cold, and died on the operating room table. That was uh, all standard by the book treatment at that time. We changed essentially all that stuff over the years. And uh, losing Palmer and uh, being with his family, uh, and that uh, happened on our watch. And so we would basically be teaching the medics, you know, only give two liters, which is what Strauss did. And they always wanted to give more. They, if two's good, three's got to be better. <laughs> yeah. And our answer was that it wasn't, and we just, best answer was, we know that two is pretty darn good, and anything more than that, we don't think so. And they just could not understand that, that kind of subtle answer yeah. and that kind of guideline. And we struggled with all those things. Uh, but that kind of loss was a pivot for me, which I was doing kind of orthopedic stuff. And um, this was the first major pivot to me to do bleeding. What was the trigger for bringing tourniquets back? It seems like in reading some of your manuscripts, you were surprised to see them being used in the combat theater. Do you think that was an organic push from medics who'd seen them in civilian practice? Or where did that initial push come from before you studied it? I studied it in a, in a tsunami of tourniquets in Baghdad, uh, and the policy was done well before that. And so I recognized that I could get the data. That was essentially world record accrual rates of patients in tourniquets. And I don't think people quite recognized that until I started doing it. Hmm. And then they realized what was going on and what the opportunity was as they started to see the spreadsheets and the numbers and the pile of tourniquets and uh, that sort of stuff. But the hmm. policy, the enactment of fielding that, that was done before. And you mentioned the article, the article 
goes into the timeline and the details and uh, the backstory. Oh yeah, that's a good point. And so by that point when you were collecting data at what was at the time the world's busiest trauma center, were you seeing mostly cat tourniquets or were you still seeing some of the ratchet homemade tourniquets that Rob talked about fielding? We saw a mixed bag, and so there was all sorts of stuff, but the cat was the most common. We had the pneumatic ones in the emergency room. We used those a lot ourselves at the hospital. Uh, The the mixed bag of improvised stuff came in, which was mind-boggling, but they were trying to do what they could with very little stuff. Mm -hmm. We we saw IV tubing used as a tourniquet, as an improvised tourniquet, engineering tape, all kinds of stuff, but those were not numerous. As a group, when you put all those types of improvised ones, we could tell that they sucked. (laughs) Is that your official Mm -hmm. scientific analysis? I would summarize my slides sometimes if I'm running late and I have a whole slide of data about improvised tourniquets. I just say, improvised tourniquets suck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then I just let, let the audience look at the slide of what suck means, and then I click to the next slide and move on because it's just uh, it, they're really hard to use well. They're really slow, and the skill required to make someone competent to use it is mind-boggling until you've actually done it and validated your proficiency. Mm. And when you have all these doctors talking to doctors about doctor stuff writing these articles about well you can do this and let me show you how and they give you some pictures um that doesn't really cut it for me when you see them exsanguinate in front of you yeah i think dr dave king put that um just as well in his uh uh, post hoc review of the boston marathon bombing that they had a 100% 100% of their tourniquets applied were improvised tourniquets, and 100% of them were ineffective, which was pretty heartbreaking, but um, fortunately for, the, for, for that the tragedy. data collected there, that, that was the case. Essentially, like the T-shirts from the running shop, which is windows blown out at the finish line, was not much different than what you saw at the, on CNN live at the Pulse nightclub where they're running down the street carrying somebody with the t-shirts tied around their thigh or something. Yeah. And uh, we did a, 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 the ex- biomechanical experiments with that sort of stuff to basically illustrate that they're really hard to make them work right. Yeah, I think. They just work. shredded our mannequin. Oh, interesting. Is that published data? Yeah, Altamirano was a cadet, and his is the first name on the paper, so uh-huh. sometimes it doesn't get much of attention. But it was just a basic lab study. It just happened to be with uh, improvised tourniquets, and they uh, hurt. The, those uh, T-shirts would twist. When you had to get them right, that knot became like kindergarten rope, you know, the gym rope size, and it just starts to vortex up and it just pulled the skin of the mannequin into it and just ripped little pieces of silicone off and it's just shearing the crap out of stuff yeah and so a lot of times people don't understand biomechanics they understand pressure like you press down on the table or something like that but once you touch the table the table starts experiencing compression and shear twisting the hand the finger it starts to go into tension. Skin and muscle do not like shear. 
they'll take compression all day long. Hmm. They do not like shear. That huh. pinches, blisters, and hurts. And um, most people don't, they kind of hear mechanics and they just kind of leave the topic, leave it at pressure and that pressure good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, the improvised suck. But when we started to evidence the stuff, we just started putting it in the bins. We had so much data, we put it in a bin. Okay, this was somebody that needed a tourniquet, didn't get a tourniquet, and they died. Those that got a tourniquet, they were in a different bin. Those that got a tourniquet that were before they got to the hospital or after they got to the hospital, geographically been different. So we just started to, what's the observed effect here? Live, died. Before shock onset, after shock onset, that really started to paint a really coherent, in-depth picture of the death mechanism, the shock control effect, the hemorrhage control effect, the timing issues, hmm. what the physiology is of a tourniquet that's arterial, or if it's venous, what does that do? We spelled that out in a number of different ways. Sometimes it was very practical stuff. Sometimes it, the whole article was just about survival. Sometimes it was just about the morbidity. And just arraying that stuff, organizing the thoughts that way, just naming the categories, shock onset, those sorts of things helped out people's understanding. And I think that compiled so much data, people just got tired of it, and they got like, enough, that's proof. And the real data crunches started to give a sense of the proof and what the effect size was. On survival percentage, the tourniquet effect size is kind of small. When you look at it as a relative risk, it's pretty big. And so I think what people were feeling and seeing as people uh, would come in, you know, exsanguinated and dead without the tourniquets, and then they would come in, a quad amputee who wasn't even really uh, out of it. He was talking to him. Uh, and the, in Vietnam, there were no quads that survived. But we've had like eight, 11 of them that are quads. And to have these people come in with less shock, they're talking to you, was very impressive to some caregivers. Just the improvement of the shock effect, the prevention of shock onset. And so just clarifying these points repeatedly, just describing what we saw, seemed to help people get over the point of, well, it's an instrument of devil or it's a lifesaver. No, I think we've pretty well validated uh, tourniquets absolutely have a role in combat trauma. And so I guess one of our next questions for the series is, um, who do you think is the current uh, audience for tourniquet education and use? Has it expanded to Thames folks, uh, civilian first responders, the lay public? Who do you see as the next audience that we really need to be reaching out to? Uh, for the last number of months, it's been uh, schools in Texas, San Antonio's uh, politicians made a state law, and it's uh, required that the schools and the charter schools train and supply the first aid stuff to include stop the bleed stuff the tourniquets. So we've been teaching the, the school nurses, the teachers, the, the lawn guys, the janitors, the food staff, you know, cafeteria people, 
uh, and it's a lot, a lot of classes because they got to get it done by the deadline, which is January. Oh wow! And is that based... so? That's just the current wave. Interesting. And besides all the excellent data that the Joint Trauma Service has collected, how do you think that we have quantified the benefit from tourniquet use from those audiences outside of the military? Well, the Joint Trauma System's inside the military, and so they are not doing that. Although they're trying to expand in the other theaters to prepare for the defense needs. Uh, the Joint Trauma System here, down the hallway, it was set up by Marianne and the surgeons. Brian and Don are across town at the university, and some of our nurses, like Rosie's over there, and our JTS people, uh, some of them are still here, that set it up. And uh, they're really um, instrumental in teaching the community. The university is the steward of the 22 counties around here, for example, and teaching the public. After Sutherland Springs got all shot up, we went down in that area and taught in the nearby churches. Uh, to, They were very interested in Stop the Bleed. The kids are to be trained. Yeah. The training, of course, like in California, the State Board of California, you learn in sixth grade, call 911. So you get the idea. Or in seventh grade, you start first aid. That's the structure of the state of California. So it's age scaled as to what to do. So it, the Texas hasn't apparently been so detailed in in how they're doing that. But that oh. template is very easy to get the PDF of the lesson plan and all that stuff from the state of California. Very practical. You don't have to reinvent the lesson plan, so to speak. I guess I'm wondering, have you got any more insight than I do into how we've been able to capture and record the data on the benefits of civilian tourniquet use. You know, Bob Axrani has kind of done one-offs after a lot of these uh, civilian public mass shootings looking at autopsy reports. But for example, I've been requesting the autopsy reports from the state of Texas for the Sutherland Springs for the last two years. And it seems like um, we don't have the same access to data on the civilian side that we do on the military to show the benefits. And that's certainly been my frustration. Have you got an avenue for that? Uh, the Texas Tourniquet Group um, published an article by Teixeira out of Austin, and uh, that was a year and a half ago, I think. And they basically took data of multiple trauma centers. Dr. Holcomb was instrumental in aiding that, one of the co-authors. He used to be here in this room, the commander. <laughs> I think there's a plaque outside I saw of him. <laughs> and uh, they were like-minded people, and they were essentially collecting hospital data. And they had a subset with peripheral vascular injury, essentially artery, that had a higher survival rate. They did it by essentially uh, that subgroup. Uh, they also looked at it overall which didn't show a survival benefit in the percentage. But they actually found about a 2.8% difference in survival rate in that subgroup, which needed it the most, mm -hmm. limb, uh, artery-type bleed. And so 
that was one of the first times where we saw that percentage metric change, hmm. not at a relative risk thing. So that's kind of a very specific, you're coding that after they've arrived to the hospital. It's not like you code it in the ambulance. or So the indication, verification, validation is done after the fact. Hmm. And so that was nice to know. It's not exactly uh, easy to guess that in the field. The uh, reliability of discerning what the lesion is in the field is really uh, difficult. Yeah, fair enough. So there's a lot of um, challenges to gathering such data. Uh, the autopsy data from Maryland and was. Dr. Goolsby, I think he's at the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences and is an active um, stop the bleed um, disaster emergency type doctor. Mm. Uh, and they showed that there's looks to be uh, a benefit gap. That's fair. Well, uh, Dr. Craig, thank you so much for your time today. If um, you had any last parting thoughts to share with our listenership about the changes in tourniquet practice that have gone on over the 20 years since the JSOM has been published, anything in particular you can share with us? My thoughts really are about the community itself. And JSOM is its one of its ways of communicating with itself, to itself, from itself. The operational health community includes medicine, veterinary, nursing, all the support services. The medics obviously are our key constituent. So the sense of being in the community, being a community, is what I think is really the most meaningful for me uh, all these years to have it consolidate. It was so kind of loose and you would do stuff for two or three years in the Ranger Regiment and then you'd, you'd lose contact with your buddies because you hardly ever saw them except at a rendezvous or something. And uh, the sense of community was that you were in it and then you were out of it. And, and so to support it, uh, the, it, at Fort Bragg, jumping out of airplanes, or uh, here in Texas doing pencil pushing science <laughs> stuff, uh, it's really um, uh, a role of a lifetime for me. Mm. Well, from the JSOM, thank you so much for all you've done to uh, save well over 2,000 injured combat soldiers on the battlefield. And uh, thank you from the JSOM for all of your eloquent reviews. You uh, make us all better off for it. I really appreciate your time and insight. This is Sofia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions. Mm -hmm.